Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. I'd like to welcome our newest members, Anastasia, Guy, Anna, George, Matthew, Catherine, Amy, Charity, Michael, Jeff, Christopher, Brendan, Keith, Todd, Luke, James, Hannah, Jonathan, Maria, and Adam, who got this as a gift from his mom. Okay, so we're basically done with feasting and food in general. I could go into the construction of the feasting hall, and I might do that at a later date if I get into a kind of carpenter mood or if there's a big hue and cry for that sort of information, but in general, I think we're done with that aspect of the Dark Ages. And next up, we're going to have a short discussion on another area of the Dark Ages that's rather misunderstood or just generally ignored. Clothing. As with the feasts, do me a favor and imagine Dark Ages clothing. Imagine the slaves and gebbers working in the fields. Imagine the thanes and kings in their halls. Everybody in all walks of life. What are they wearing? What does it look like? And if you're in a safe place, i.e. not driving or riding a bike, jot down a few thoughts about it so we can see how close the image that pop culture has given us is to the reality of how these people lived. Got it? All right, let's start with the most basic bits. You know those ragged burlap rags of peasants and those flowing silken tunics that you see nobles wearing in just about every medieval film? Well, that isn't really true. You see, it's very easy to imagine the lower classes were living in rags because of what we know about the economic chasm between the rich and the poor in the Anglo-Saxon world. And of course, we've been speaking for months about how wealth was concentrated on strongmen and the church during this period in history. So the lower classes were poor, don't get me wrong, but they weren't destitute the way we imagine them in films, at least not all the time. And to be clear, we're going to be talking about what clothing might have been worn at a normal time in history, whatever that might mean. So we're not talking about what would have been worn during times of economic distress, such as war or famine, or a rise in Anglo-Saxon hipsters for some reason. Events like that would surely cause a corresponding decrease in the quality of clothing. But we're just going to talk about what might have been worn if everything was stable and normal. So to start with, let's explain why this is an incredibly hard area to study. Assuming that people are still around 1,500 years into the future, reconstructing what we wore will be much easier for these future people than it is for us looking back to the Anglo-Saxons. Even if we enter into a new dark age and the written historical record is damaged or lost, those future people will still have an easier time than we do. That's because we wear a lot of synthetic materials, things that just aren't biodegradable. Hell, you only have to look at my wardrobe and see that I have clothes that I bought in the mid-90s to realize that our clothing is nigh indestructible. But that's not the case for the clothing of the Anglo-Saxons. Natural fibers break down. They rot. They disintegrate. And much like myself, the majority of Anglo-Saxons would wear clothing until it fell apart. So there just weren't too many items of clothing that were preserved and set aside for posterity. Of course, there are exceptions, but usually those are religious in nature and don't give us a very good picture of what Ulfric the Geber was wearing while he was sowing his fields. Occasionally we get lucky and find a fragment that was discarded and has managed to be preserved through time. But in general, we're left to conjecture and literary and artistic sources. And as we've already discussed, authors and artists almost certainly took some liberties in their work and sometimes displayed a certain laziness by putting everyone in near-identical outfits. Some even put farmers in clothes that really belonged in a court. All of which makes our task all the more difficult. But we're going to do our best and see what we can do to shine a light on all of this. 
And here's the first fact that I'd like to offer up to you. One that when I first learned it, it blew my mind. We know that this was before Velcro and zippers. That's pretty obvious. But get this. This was an era before buttons. No buttons. It seems like a common sense solution that has been with us since we first figured out that wrapping a saber-toothed tiger skin around us kept us warm and also made us look awesomely fierce. But no, no buttons. Clasps, ties, thongs, those would have to suffice. It would be a little while till we had buttons. All right, so let's talk about materials. After all, styles would have changed over time, at least a little bit, but fabrics would have stayed much more consistent. Now, when you think about Britain during this period, what do you think of? Well, let's try that again. When you think of animals in Britain, what do you think of? Yeah, sheep. Sheep means wool. Itchy, smelly when damp, wool. Britain was known for its wool, and actually we'll find that wool production played a key role in a number of conflicts with the continent as our story progresses. Now right now, I'm sure that I've got some listeners who are saying, come on, this is the dark ages, I wanted bloodshed and war, but instead we're talking about table manners and wool? Well, we're going to get to the bloodshed, but frankly everyone covers that. Not everyone talks about this stuff, and throughout history, I would argue that food, shelter, and clothing has played a much bigger role in the lives of people, not to mention the survival of humanity, than whether or not this king had a grudge against that king. I'm just saying. Besides, wool really was at the heart of several major conflicts, so this is kind of important stuff. So yeah, wool. Britain was neck deep in it, and that makes sense. Sheep can live damn near anywhere, and sheep also produce milk, and when slaughtered, they produce meat. A smart farmer would want at least some sheep on hand despite the headbutting, so wool would have been plentiful. Now, you might think of wool as a luxury now. After all, we've managed to find ways to produce fibers for much less than the cost of raising sheep. But back then, it wasn't the case. But that being said, one sort of wool wasn't the same as another. And one type of cloth wasn't the same as another. A geber and a thane might both be wearing wool, but the quality and comfort of the two outfits might have differed dramatically. The thing about wool is that you don't just shear it off of a sheep and immediately turn it into an ugly Christmas sweater. You have to wash it, comb it, separate the coarse wool fibers from the finer ones. This is called carding. And after that, it could be spun into yarn using a drop spindle. So while both the rich and the poor might be wearing wool, one might be wearing much coarser and itchier of an outfit than the other. But since we're talking about wool, why don't I explain what happens next? So after it's been spun into yarn, it would be put onto a vertical frame and woven. But the thing about wool is that it's greasy as hell because it's full of lanolin, the same stuff that's in a lot of lotions. And so you need to find a way to clean it so you can wear the wool without getting all shiny and oily like a teenager. So they probably would have used one of two methods to break down the grease. Either they would soak it in Fuller's earth, which is a kind of clay, or they would soak it in urine. After a good pea soak, you'd probably want to wash the cloth and then hang it. As it's hanging and still wet, a worker would beat it, which would make the fibers stick together, making it thicker, stronger, and also softer. Next, it would be stretched out over a wooden frame to dry, and hooks were used in this process to stretch it out and keep it from shrinking. If you stretch it too much, you'll end up with weak cloth. However, you'll also end up with more cloth to sell. So there probably were some unscrupulous people who sold very weak stretched cloth, which led to rules requiring the stretching to be done out in public and be subject to inspections. Now, once the wool is dried, 
It would be groomed, possibly with a teasel plant, which has a spiny head, basically just kind of comb it. And then you have wool cloth. But here's the kicker. If you were poor, there might not just be wool and urine in your outfit. There might also be hair, such as goat hair. Now, there's a reason why we wear wool, but we don't wear hair shirts unless we are really into masochism or feel like we have some religious punishment coming. Hair isn't a comfortable fiber for clothing. It's itchy and it's horrible. All you have to do, really, is go get your hair cut and not take a shower afterwards to realize how itchy and horrible hair would be as a piece of clothing. But the thing is, is that later in the Middle Ages, there were areas that were banning it from being woven into yarns. So chances are, people probably were weaving it into yarns to stretch it out and produce more so-called wool yarn. But later in the Middle Ages, there were areas that were banning hair from being woven into yarns. So almost certainly, there were some people who were trying to stretch out their quantity of wool and get more of a profit by weaving hair into the yarn and thus making a really uncomfortable sweater. Anyway... And of course, the hair wool would be something that would probably be worn primarily by the poor members of society, or the really gullible ones. Anyway, so as you might imagine, there were all kinds of wool cloth out there, and they weren't all the same. But the thicker and softer the cloth, the more expensive it would be. Now, the other major fabric amongst the Anglo-Saxons would have been linen. Linen is derived from the flax plant, and these days it's generally associated with fine, soft clothing. But in the Dark Ages, it was another matter. Linen clothing would have been rough to the touch, but also very hardy, at least in comparison to how we think of linen today. How hardy? Well, linen was used to make sails, so pretty hardy. The reason it's so soft now is that we can mechanize a lot of the production, but back then you had to do it all by hand. It required soaking the flax, and then you just beat the hell out of it. And the longer you beat it, the softer it would become. So predictably, only the richest could afford very soft linen clothing. But even the poor members of society would probably have some clothing made out of linen. It would just be the tougher, coarser variety. Now, hemp, for my hippie listeners, was also used in the Dark Ages, but it wasn't as prevalent as wool and linen. And copper, the fiber of choice for our modern era, was quite scarce in the Dark Ages outside of a few pockets. And Britain was not in one of those pockets. If you were wearing cotton, you would have been quite wealthy and also would have had trade contacts with the Mediterranean. And then you get to the ultra-expensive cloth, silk. Having access to silk would have been quite difficult and would have required a fairly good trade network. It wasn't until the early Middle Ages that silkworms were imported into Europe, so getting silk would, in general, be a huge pain in the butt and probably would have involved the Silk Road. As a result, the acquisition of silk might not have even been possible in the early period because of trade issues thanks to the collapse of Rome. So when you imagine those early Anglo-Saxon kings, you probably shouldn't imagine them in silk. And since silk is out, I'm guessing that your mind's eye has switched now to leather and fur. Well, fur was certainly a possibility for those who could afford it, especially in the colder months. Chances are that fur would line the interior of a garment, such as a cloak, to provide insulation. The better tailors, as time went on, probably figured out that people wanted to show off the lining of their clothing and brag about their wealth and status. And so you ended up with fur not just being on the interior, but also along the hem, which is probably how we ended up with fur trim. Now, as for leather, leather has all sorts of uses, and much like today, it was primarily bovine leather that would have been used. But making leather was no picnic. It wasn't like you could just take the hide of a cow and call it good. If you did that, it would either harden and be largely unusable, or it would rot. 
And as you might have guessed, much like wool, urine was involved in the production of leather. There's a lot of pee in the Dark Ages. And it wasn't just the pee. Tanning leather in general was a pretty unpleasant affair. In fact, it was so stinky that it was typically done in a building that was separated from the general population. So in addition to being gross, you would also have to work far out in the boonies with little other than the smell and your trusty bucket of urine to keep you company. Good times. You know, let's explain how awful this job was. So first, you need to skin the animal, which I'm told is not as easy as it looked in Game of Thrones. Next up, you need to get the fur off of the skin. One of the ways you can do this is to just soak the hide in water until the hair loosens up and pull it out. Now, the danger of this is that it could lead to the hide becoming damaged or even rotting. So that's not the best of choices that you have. You could also just scrape the hair off the hide, which requires a lot of elbow grease and carries with it the risk of damaging the leather because, you know, you're scraping the leather. Now, the safer way to do it is to soak the hide in something really caustic, like very ashy water or lime or... You guessed it, stale urine. Not just regular old urine, oh no. No, you want stale urine. This gets better and better. Now, of course, if you go that route, you're going to need to get the solution out of the skin afterwards. Otherwise, things are going to go sideways on you when you're tanning, not to mention it's going to be really smelly. Anyway, once you've removed the hair and you've gotten the urine out of the skin, you're going to need to tan it. The point of tanning leather is to toughen it up and also slow down the process of decay. The way you do that is by using something that has a lot of tannins in it. In fact, the name tanning comes from the tannins that are used in the process. Now generally, certain kinds of tree bark would be used because they were rich in tannins. And from the reading that I've done, apparently oak is the best bark for tanning. So chances are that the better tanneries would have used oak bark. It's neat how often that wood comes up in our story, isn't it? So anyways, so you get some bark, and what you're going to be doing with it is you're basically going to make a tea out of it, and then you're bathing the hide. During this process, a tanner might well have adjusted the strength of the tanning bed over time, and this process could take months depending on the thickness of the hide. And it was a rather nasty process. So not only was it smelly and gross and cut off from most of society, but it also took a really long time. There had to have been better jobs out there. All right, so those are the main fabrics that you would probably see in Anglo-Saxon society. The non-fabric or leather items, the things that are generally made out of plastic in our modern era, well, those were probably made out of wood, bone, horn, metal, and maybe even ivory, depending on the wealth and trade contacts of the person. But in general, this is what you would see. But I want to make sure I'm clear on something. The wealthiest didn't walk around in silk and fur every day. They probably had very fine clothing on hand, of course, but such clothing would be reserved for special occasions, such as feasts. And what I've been saying for months now still holds true, and you could probably say it with me at this point. These people weren't all that different from us. Think about it this way. Bill Gates certainly owns a tuxedo, but he doesn't wear it all the time. In general, he probably wears khakis and a polo shirt. Now, they are probably made from rather nice materials, but the point is, he's not dressed up to the nines when he's hanging around in his gigantic house. He's just wearing kind of normal clothing that most of us would wear. And from what we can tell, not much has changed from the ancient Anglo-Saxons to Bill Gates. You know, other than computers. Alright, so the peasants probably wore durable, though also rather coarse, wool or linen fabrics. The merchants probably had access to better fabrics, but largely the same materials, just softer. And the nobility might have had access to finer fabrics such as silk, 
and fur, but on an average day, you would probably be much more likely to see them wearing wool or linen. Finer grade, surely, but still wool or linen. Make sense? Okay, so what did Anglo-Saxon fashion look like? Well, things would change from region to region and from class to class. But there were some common themes, and these stretch back to the Anglo-Saxons' pre-British days, actually. As you know, the Anglo-Saxons were Germanic, and we know from Tacitus that their ancestors wore trousers, something that the Romans thought to be barbaric. The Romans thought quite a lot to be barbaric, if we're being totally honest. But to talk about styles, let's start at the earliest invasion period. And from what we can tell from that period, people of different classes really didn't dress too differently. At least not up in the north. And that makes sense if you think about it. We're talking about mercenaries, war bands, and migrants. Life was much more pragmatic and focused upon survival. No one had time to say, did anyone tell Unferth that you don't wear linen tunics after Labor Day? No one was doing that. So if you're from that period, you probably would be wearing a tunic, trousers, and possibly a cloak, depending on the weather. So in many ways, at that point, they were continuing the traditions of their Germanic ancestors. So the tunic, what was that like? Well, think about it as a precursor to the modern shirt. You put it on by pulling it over your head, and because it rested on your shoulders and neck, it didn't need ties. So it sounds a lot like a t-shirt, right? Now, it would go down to the hip, or sometimes down to the knee, and actually, people would wear more than one tunic at a time. Think about this like when you put on a dress shirt, but you also have an undershirt on. The under tunic was largely the same principle. But unlike a shirt, tunics would be worn with a belt or some sort of tie around the waist, which might have been quite ornate depending on the class of the person. Now, belts were quite necessary to keep everything in place and also provide a place to keep your stuff, but that didn't stop the upper echelons of society from having rather flashy belts. Now, the trousers were exactly as you'd imagine them. They were pants, usually ankle length. Though the Anglo-Saxons must have been into the skinny jeans look, because if they had baggy trousers, they would have bound them up with cloth or leather to keep them tight. Now, much like with tunics, there might have been a second pair of trousers that were worn at the same time. And the under trousers would have been tightly fitting, like leggings or stockings. And then the outer pair would have provided extra warmth and protection. The cloak, when worn, was probably fastened with a brooch. And from the scant references we have, it probably opened up either at the front or on the right shoulder. Now, as we've been speaking about, while everyone was wearing roughly the same thing, the materials and quality could vary greatly. For example, a war leader might have worn a fine fur coat with the fur facing inward to provide warmth and comfort, while the poorer members of society might have to wear rough wool cloaks or maybe even that awful wool that had been stretched out with hair. As for accessories, they wore leather shoes, probably of varying types considering how many words they had for them, hats, hoods, gloves, and mittens. But as you might have noticed, this is focusing largely upon male clothing, and a lot of the resources available from the time do relate to men, but not all of them. So what were the ladies wearing? Well, cloaks, belts, stockings, shoes, brooches, and the like were common to the women of the time, just like with men. Really, the items that differentiated the sexes were the tunic and the dress. Where the men wore tunics, the women were clothed in long dresses. The style was essentially a peplos dress and was an item of clothing of the Germanic tribes for centuries before they reached British soil. It was basically a tubular blouse dress that fastened with brooches, leaving the arms bare. That is, unless it was cold. Then they might wear an underdress or a sleeve dress. 
In fact, in the north, we have evidence of wrist clasps that were specifically for sleeves in this case. And hey, I mean, it gets pretty nippy up there, so that makes sense. And on that point, in the north, the dresses usually went to the ankles, whereas the southern Saxon dresses, well, they were a bit shorter. Oh, those scandalous Saxon ladies. There's also evidence that there might have been an inner gown, something along the lines of a precursor to the petticoat. And here's a fun fact on that note. While we have references to men wearing what amounts to the Anglo-Saxon equivalent of underwear, we don't see anything similar with regard to the women. Now, there are a couple reasons why this might be. The first is that people might have been a bit awkward with the idea of discussing or painting panties in that period. That might be the case. But its absence is remarkably uniform, so everybody would have had to have been like, whoa, can't talk about panties. So the other possibility is that the Anglo-Saxon women were going commando. Another side note, but not nearly as fun as that one, is headwear. You might have an image in your mind's eye of an Anglo-Saxon lady with a hood around her head or a veil covering her hair, something along those lines. Well, there isn't any evidence that women covered their heads during the pagan times. That's a practice that only appeared after the rise of Christianity. So those scandalous Saxon ladies with their knee-length dresses going commando might have also let their hair down, out in public, where anyone could see it. Have you no shame, madam? So the question you might be asking is, what happens if it's really cold? How do women stay warm? A cloak, a gown, and a petticoat probably isn't going to do the trick. Things might be getting a bit drafty, especially with the underwear situation. So did they have long johns? Did they layer multiple dresses on? Well, we don't know. But these were hardy people, so maybe they just toughed it out. Now, as we progress into the middle to late Anglo-Saxon era, we find a lot of things have stayed the same. People still largely wear similar items of clothing, just with varying materials and qualities depending on their wealth. Adding ornamentation has become more popular and more common amongst the wealthy, obviously not so much with the poor. Many of the items of clothing, though, really did stay the same. There wasn't a sudden shift to togas, for example. We had tunics, trousers, gowns, cloaks, and the like. So other than ornamentation, which really does seem to have taken off, it seems that there were really just two big changes in clothing. The first was the jacket, which was basically a waistcoat. And let's face it, waistcoats are excellent. So well done there. The second was that trousers were shortened. Now they were knee length. And the lower legs were now covered by, I don't really have a good word for this, but basically leg warmers? Essentially, what you had was cloth or leather wrapping around your legs and crisscrossing around your calves. It would start at your ankles and head up towards your knees. Now, why would you do that, you might be asking. What advantage does short pants and a complicated set of leg warmers really grant you? I mean, the waistcoat is obvious. It looks awesome and it's going to get the ladies. But what about the new leg wear? What's with that? Well, I have no idea. It's fashion. It doesn't really have to have a purpose. Now, as for color, the Anglo-Saxons didn't have access to the range of colors that we do. In fact, we have access to so many colors that it's easy for us to imagine the Anglo-Saxons just wearing lots of beiges and browns. But they had access to dyes. Chances are that if you were living at that time, you'd see clothing that had been dyed red, blue, green, and a variety of shades in between. Yellow wasn't very popular on its own, and maybe that had to do with all the pee involved in the making of clothing, but sometimes yellow would be used in addition to other dyes to make different shades. 
And then when the Vikings showed up, things changed. You see, much like the Smiths and the Cure, the Vikings were all about wearing black. So things changed a bit. But we'll get to that when we get into game law. The point is that life was probably more colorful than you think. Now the final point I'd like to make is in relation to the acquisition of clothing. How did you get these clothes? Well, there were tailors, but those were pretty much exclusively for the rich. The average Anglo-Saxon, just like the average person until very recently in modern history, would have been wearing homemade clothing or some sort of secondhand clothing, whether it was cast-offs, sold, or bequeathed. So the unfashionable tunic that Unferth was wearing was probably made by his wife or his mother and had probably been patched and repaired more times than he cares to imagine. These clothes were homemade, durable, and unless the person was rich, they were worn until they simply couldn't be repaired. And by and large, the creation of clothing and the repair of clothing was considered to be women's work at that point. Okay, so as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. You can go to facebook.com slash britishhistory, or you can go over to Twitter. We're at at britishpodcast, and you can also join us on the forums. Just go over to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click get involved, and click forums, and you'll find us all there. All right, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.